right, here we go. Friday, 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 T.I., Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar. John Von Tobel is here. It's Cofield. We got all the uh, sports up on 55-plus TVs, including Western Conference Final, VGK, and Dallas just across the way. Again, we're at Treasure Island at Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar. Come over here, watch the game, take advantage of uh, happy air specials on this Friday at the Golden Circle and all their good food specials. We're ready to go. We're ready to go. 5.30 puck drop for game one of the VGK series. What's up, John? Nothing much. It's a good time to be alive. NBA postseason's awesome and also coming to an end, so my work is about to lighten up a little bit for the first time in many, many months. So selfishly, I'm very happy that we're here at this point. All right. Good deal. Good deal. What do you expect in the series? Which one? Both of them? Hockey. Oh, VGK. Yeah. I'm very, very excited. Because... Are you? Yeah, I am. Okay. Because... So through the first two rounds of the postseason, it's been a Vegas Golden Knights team that has been somewhat disrespected both narratively and in the betting market. There was movement against them in the series against the Winnipeg Jets. At every turn, despite every loss and poor play in terms of the goaltending for Edmonton, every person was telling you that Edmonton was the better team and that they were going to come out, eventually win that series and win the conference. And now here they are against the Dallas Stars favorites in the series as they rightfully should be and finally getting some respect it'll be pretty cool to see this team kind of i don't know give finally the respect they deserve because almost every single time everything you've heard from both respected hockey handicappers and or journalists and pundits has been like i don't know about this knights team here they are one step away from the stanley cup finals yet again they don't have the best player in the nhl like denver does with Jokic. but sort of the same disrespect i think a lot of people forget that denver comes into this as a number one seed and i think you get it to an extent because of what was going on in goal and then, of course, what subsequently happened afterwards where you put Aiden Hill there. But it also just it ignores the fact that this is a good defensive team in the Vegas Golden Knights. They have guys who will block shots and get in front of the net and not put their goaltender in situations where they're having to turn away high-danger chance after high-danger chance. So no, I th- this is why I think I'm really intrigued because I think they can match up pretty well with Dallas win this series and move on. I think they're rightfully favored. I think you can make the argument they should be favored by more. It seems that the series price of about $1.30, $1.35 has just given them home ice, and that's about it. But I I think this is an intriguing series because the Knights can, I don't want to say deliver because that would mean people have expectations for them. It doesn't seem like they have. But at least prove some folks wrong in that, hey, all along, it's like the astronauts with the moon meme where the one's pointing the gun to the other guy's head, and he's like, it was the Vegas Golden Knights. And the other knight says, yeah, it has been the whole time. Like, yeah, it has been the whole time. It's been the one seat. Game one is tonight. That's a 5.30 puck drop uh, just up the road here from TI at the Fortress. We bounce back in this series on Sunday with a noon start, and then they kind of squeeze a bunch of games in. There's not a lot of breaks. So it's basically I am every sur- other day. And, uh, you know, in this case, Western Conference Finals, so you're not too far apart with Dallas and Las Vegas. But this one's going to hum along. So uh, road games next week on Tuesday and Thursday, and we'll see where they are after four games. I'm kind of surprised. Every, each of the sports are doing that, that they're in their conference finals, basketball and hockey. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I mean, or did some of the series maybe take longer than they thought, so they're up against it, so they don't, they're not allowed to schedule time between? Because I know that the, this, the NBA finals have a hard start time of June 1st. I don't know if that's the same for the Stanley Cup finals. Maybe that is, but I was well, the surprised. The series got kind of jacked up by the fact that, there, again, there were some difficulties that's working right. it out with ESPN because ESPN chose this series instead of the E-Series because it's really not a true E-Series. We had John Bucci-Gross on at the beginning of the week, and uh, Bucci told us, hey, normally we would always pick the Eastern Conference, you know, mm-hmm. and he didn't say, like, we don't care about the West, but they don't. Hey, he, he did throw out there that, uh, you know, most of the country still lives in the Northeast Corridor from D.C. up to Boston. I'm like, I, 
technically, I don't think that's entirely correct, but I know that's the ESPN mentality. But in this case, this was a more interesting series for them with Dallas and Vegas. Mm-hmm. Vegas is a big draw. Oh, it should be. It absolutely should be. It's a good team, too. That's the other part of it. And that. this is good. I think it's good for the fans because uh, you're not buried later in the night, later in the evening. So I guess for TV, it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, for fans, you know, you're going to have to kind of rush around a little bit if they're back here, you know, after four games. Um, so, you know, you're not going to get 7 o'clock starts. All the starts in the series are 5, 5.30, and 6 o'clock Pacific. That is the disappointing type thing. I, I do miss, like, for sports in general. Now we have baseball, so you get, like, the 7 o'clock starts. But late-night starts are good. Good for viewing. These uh, are some of us psychos. Yeah, it depends on where you live. Yeah. I, I had, Last week I was in the central time zone, and, man, well, I was also kind of rocking and rolling hard during the day, a little bit of drinking, lots of eating. And by the time 9 or 10 o'clock came around, I was like, whew. And that's when the games are starting. You, sure you wasn't forget a, when you're in the Central and the East, like, oh, boy, these are late. You sure it wasn't a lot of both? You said a little bit of drinking and a lot of eating? You sure it's not a lot of both? I felt like it was a lot more eating. <laughs> I don't want to get into, uh, well, I'll, I'll keep it, you know, I could get gross on this stuff. Yeah. I'll just say this. When I go on my vacation, uh, Grandpa gets uh, irregular. Okay. So I felt stuffed the whole time. Okay. But did I stop eating? No. Of did I throw not. down a, a salad or two? No. More fruit? No. Or like a goat, you know, goats eat rocks to help digest stuff. You gotta uh, eat a, is gotta that right? Eat right, yeah. Uh, it's a rock then because I had some goat. <laughs> uh, all of our Golden Knights coverage is presented by our good friends at Finley Cadillac. All right, you can watch the NBA game here tonight. You can watch the Western Conference Final here tonight. But especially in the case of the NBA, I can't guarantee anything, but I feel 99.9% sure we won't have a snafu like we did the other night. The Celtics and the Heat, a lot of people did not get to watch the end of the game. So it depended on where you lived and when it went out. And I would say, no, it's not going to happen here because they don't have YouTube TV. It was a YouTube TV thing where TNT went down. For me, it went down at halftime. For everybody else, it went down like tail end of the third quarter and going into the fourth, where first half of the third quarter, I couldn't watch it. It kept buffering, not working. Every other, ch- every other channel was working except for the How one I happen? needed. I have no well, idea. Did, did we ever get an explanation or release? Never. I got a tweet from YouTube's official Twitter account. When I sarcastically, I didn't even at them. I just, you know, I mentioned YouTube TV. And um, I got to, we're working on it. And I <laughs> kind of wanted to respond with like, yeah, you didn't, didn't take you that long to jack up my monthly price. But, hey, man, this thing, ah, we're working on it. We can't get it done. I had to go to a local watering hole. I had to leave my house to go watch it. Do you think there's anyone out there who actually emails these subscription services with TV and they're like, I want my money back for this game, this so, day, this game? I want a refund. There's probably some. but I mean, I do. We should all do it. Here's the thing, and that's the point. I'll bring up an old memory of uh, the late Chuck Ojeda. I don't think he's late. He just hasn't been here. Jesus. Um, that got morbid. He's <laughs> well, still alive. Chuck had the story where he wrote the Raiders oh, an angry right. letter. Did, yeah. I feel like somebody, somebody of my status, Steve, no, somebody who has yeah. to watch the game for work, I feel like I could probably work him for something, like a free month. You know, write him, just be like, you know I can't do my job because you screwed this up. Do something like that and maybe get something Why out didn't of it? you just really do an at me on social media, on Twitter, and say, you know, basically, hey, do you know who I am? I hate that. When people do it to airlines Lots of others don't. or they others. Do it. And yeah. They do it. I can't. I I'm going to get them. And even then, I felt like I felt like a jerk. Did you? I didn't even at them. You know, I just put YouTube TV, uh, and, and still it got to them because I'm sure they're going through their mentions because it's just blowing up. So I felt kind of bad, but. I'm not going to ask for a refund, publicly at least. EDC weekend is here, so uh, interesting crowd hanging around the Strip. That's what that is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's There's a lot of first-timers here. you got a lot of uh, interesting outfits on, 
on the uh, guys and the women. Well, I didn't notice the outfit. It just so when I walked by, because a bunch of people are in here, they're all hanging out, they're a little younger. Yeah. But first off, strong smell of sunscreen. That was one thing Gotta that really careful. stuck out, right? But the other is I heard a lot of walking by different groups. Hey, first time, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? What's happening? So that's what that is. Okay. A lot of people out here for the first time. Nice. Uh, big weekend here, and then especially coming up next week with Memorial Day weekend, which, you know, we can tab as the official beginning of summer in Las Vegas. So it's, you know, today it's nice and steamy out there. I got out of the car on the roof in the parking garage. I'm like, yeah, we're back. Yep. We're back. A little bit of sweaty heat. Let's do it. Um, they're going to have uh, bucket specials. Uh, starting up on uh, Sunday through Thursday. So take advantage of the bucket specials with the uh, domestic beers. And uh, you get five in a bucket there, four import beers with the bucket special. And uh, T.I. is right here in the middle of the Las Vegas Strip. We've told you a billion times. you got to listen. you got to come down here. Great place to uh, eat, drink, and party, especially next week with Memorial Day weekend. And locals, remember, parking is uh, uh, always free at T.I. Man, the highs and lows of the fourth quarter last night with the Lakers. I was really into it. And then they started like crap at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Then they make this mad rush back. And I just thought the decision-making by some of the Lakers stars was bad. Some of the support players made stupid decisions as well. And then there's Jamal Murray, who I thought was done. With three minutes left, he is walking up the floor. I'm like, he's gassed. He's done. And then just three, 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 three. What He, uh, he finished with, what, 23 in the fourth, six of seven from the floor, four or five of those were three-pointers. And then free throws that he missed one. I think he missed one free throw. And yes. they could not get the ball away from him or keep it away from him to have someone else shoot. Because the Lakers were doing an amazing job in those final two minutes, John, of like banging it up the court, getting a layup, fouling immediately. But they kept fouling Murray and he wouldn't miss. Nope. It was, I thought it was an incredible performance from Jamal Murray. And to have, you know, it's similar to what the, Jason Tatum did in what was it, game six against Philly. To have the, to have the mental fortitude. To put, out, to put away the first three quarters. Well, he was awful. He was terrible. He couldn't make a shot. He's been dealing with, I think it's an ear infection and something else to the sinuses, so clearly he looked gassed because he couldn't breathe properly. And to put that all away and to not only make the shots but continue to take them, take them when you knew that you weren't on that day and to hit them at the level they were, that one possession was at about three or four minutes left to go where he's got the ball near the end of the shot clock and he's got AD on him and he goes, you know what, i gotta hit, I got to try a step back here at the top of the key. And he nails it right in AD's face for a massive three in that game. I'm not taking away from Murray because, like, that shot, it, it wasn't horribly defended because the catch-up ground, uh, you know, basically the close the distance, mm-hmm. you know, on a guy like AD, he's very athletic, very long. Like, it was right over his hand. But there were also way too many times when they got caught a little bit behind on a switch and left him just open enough. And I think part of that, when LeBron got caught, LeBron did turn his ankle. Mm-hmm. And then I couldn't tell if he was hurt. Or what he was doing, because then he he looked hobbled, and then like he made a steal at midcourt, jets up the floor, and then he tries to take off, and then he looks hurt, and then he throws the layup over the rim on a reverse. So I, their their defense on Murray was a little bit behind, and then when he really started, when he first started getting going in the fourth quarter, they went underneath the pick a couple of times, and it's like you can't yep. you can't do it with this guy. But to your point, he was terrible. So it's like wait, now he's going to make them all? Yeah, no, because and also for a guy like that too. You know, if you go over those things, he's also good enough to where he can use that empty space in between that and the drop where he could just pull up and hit something. So it's kind of like a pick your poison. What do you want him to do? And, like, to your – I mean, the decision is, yeah, he's not hitting threes. Force him to hit threes and anything else, and he absolutely made him pay. It, I thought it was an awesome performance from Denver to, to be down. And Malone even said it at one point. I think it was an in-game interview. 
they were down by 10 or 11, and it looked like the Lakers were going to pull away, and the Nuggets immediately go on a 7 nothing run to kind of quiet it down and get down to about by 4. And that was really big for them in that third quarter because it, it looked like they were going to put their foot on the gas Lakers and get away with it. And then AD, there were a couple times. Like, he hit a corner three. Yeah. But then he took another, another corner three. It was a terrible shot. Um, he went into the lane on a sort of a drive, got caught at about 12 feet, and then just lost the ball in the air. I don't know if – like, he legitimately lost it, but I think he didn't really follow through with much effort because he thought a foul was going to be called. Mm-hmm. So, bad decisions by him. Uh, Schroeder had a case where he went into the lane super weak and got swatted. Just a couple of, you know, bad decisions here and there. And, frankly, you look at both games, uh, playing poorly for a period of time put them in or behind the eight ball. But then when they caught up and made the run, there were just a couple times they couldn't do what they needed to do. So this could very easily be a 1-1 or a 2-0 series. And I'm not going with with that narrative. If you're a Lakers fan, you should be really frustrated because you are now – I think pretty much screwed. I think they're going to fight in the series. I don't think they can win the series now. They had to win. When you're that competitive down the stretch, you had to win one of those games. I think they're in big trouble. I mean, I think they're in big trouble too, but I also think the Nuggets played one of their worst games that we've seen in the postseason. They still won it. Okay. I, I think they were terrible in, last night for, by their own standards, and they made adjustments and they changed things up. I mean, one of, the, one of the brilliant things they started to do in the second half too, Steve, was, okay, well, if – you guys are going to defend Murray that way, or if Jokic isn't going to be as aggressive, let's run a whole bunch of stuff for Michael Porter Jr. And Michael Porter Jr., it, it helped him out. He was hitting shots. He was being aggressive. He was finding his shot and doing it. I, I think either way we agree on the fact that the Lakers are up against it. And you're never out of it in a 2 nothing yeah. series because you're going back home. But I think that when you look at the whole series and you say, okay, what is the next step that we take for the Lakers? I think one of the next steps that you take is, okay, Anthony Davis, we're going to try to get you more involved in terms of off-ball stuff to get your offense going. Let's use you as the roll man on pick and roll, see if we can get some lob opportunities up to you. Let's have you cut to the basket. Let's run some off-ball screens to get you open and cut it to the basket. Little things like that where it forces his man, namely Jokic, to kind of move in space instead of just drop and defend him like that. But then if you're the Nuggets, the response there is, okay, let's play zone or let's, let's put Aaron Gordon on him to make it a little bit more easy in terms of off-ball stuff. I, I think there's just – there's a lot more counters in the Nuggets bag than there are for the Lakers going forward. So to your point, even if they make adjustments and, like, take a game three, I still think there's plenty of opportunity for the Nuggets to take a game four. I'll throw it to you, and I'll also throw it at Mike Malone. We're going to play his quotes later on. You do understand people care about the Lakers, and we're in Las Vegas. So when I make the case for the Lakers, it's not a I'm dissing the Nuggets because I do think the Nuggets are the better team, and the Lakers are going to have to play better throughout and not – well, they had a lead last night, but then not go down, you know, freaking in the fourth quarter when they come out of the gates in the fourth and the Nuggets go 20-5 to five on a run. Mm. My whole point is that the Lakers are, have been in the series. They've blown a couple of chances here, but for everyone out there, it's like the Nuggets are being disrespected. We're going to talk about the Nuggets. We're going to talk about Jokic, but it's the NBA. We're in Las Vegas. L.A.'s right down the road. We've got Laker transplants, so guess what? We're going to talk about the Lakers' angle, but I do believe the Nuggets are the team to beat. Um, I think there's a team to beat the rest of the way. I, I we'll get into the Celtics and you know your whole thing. And a lot of people saying, "Hey, the Heat are they're going to have a tough time in the series," and they may still have a tough time. But there's something flawed with the Celtics team, and maybe it starts on the sideline with Joe Mazzulla. I'm not sure what happens in the opening of these series, but it's been really, really weird. Follow the guys on Twitter at Steve Cofield and at me, JVT, or tweet the show at Cofield and Company or at ESPN Las Vegas. 
It's a good guy to listen to, right? Tom Brady giving a pep talk to uh, many of the drafted quarterbacks in this most recent NFL draft. Can you imagine sitting there? I'm, I'm gonna, I might go on a kids these days rant, but I don't do that because I don't think that. But can you imagine if any of them were sitting there and they're like, who is this guy? Does he know what he's talking about? This is a bunch of bull crap. Like, eh, I think I would listen to him because he made a couple of points in there. One, well, it does matter where you're drafted. You have a, you have a much tougher time of getting a gig. I mean, you're really going to have to excel to get that starting quarterback job from coming from a fourth, fifth, or sixth-round pick. Brady is the outlier. You know, even guys like Russell Wilson, a third-round pick, outlier. Jalen Hurts, second-round pick, okay. It's tough. It's tough. But the second point he made there was he never rested. He's kind of joking about I outlasted everyone. He did, but he outlasted everyone because he worked his ass off. And he won a lot of Super Bowls and kept going back to the Super Bowl because he was a freaking lunatic and never grew satisfied. And that's, uh, that's why he's one of the greatest winners of all time because Brady, think about it. I mean, look at the condition he was in. He got, he got a little ridiculously skinny this last year, but a lot of that was due to marital issues. Uh, who, you know, over the course of his career goes from what Brady looked like when he was 22 years old to what Brady looked like when he was 45. There was a lot of work and taking advantage of advancements in fitness. So interesting piece of audio there with uh, Brady talking to the most recently drafted players. So we get the news coming down. I think this one's interesting. And I don't want to crap on San Francisco and Northern California because I think the whole region is awesome. San Fran, in spite of having its issues in the city proper, very cool city. News comes down that San Francisco may be getting the Super Bowl in 2026. That'll be Super Bowl 60. And not to be negative, but my first thought was, why? I just mentioned some of the positives. You know, the population, there's awesome culture. If you can afford it, it's a tremendous area to live in. But my biggest problem is why don't we move past the driving Super Bowl cities and I don't want to nix Miami because it is a driving Super Bowl city, but Santa Clara is nowhere near San Francisco. It was a terrible place to build the stadium, unless you want to make the case that, hey, it was a stadium for a regional team. I don't feel like – I guess it is a regional team. I, I don't know. It's just, When people go there for the Super Bowl, where do you stay? You're going to have to drive. And that's why Miami, in a lot of ways, is a nightmare – if they felt like the infrastructure was up to snuff in terms of the stadium itself, New Orleans should always get the Super Bowl. We should always get the Super Bowl. Is L.A. a driving city? I guess it is. The problem is there's not enough of these centralized cities to nix San Francisco. But I will tell you, that year, for like at least six months, San Fran is going to take a friggin' beating from Certain media outlets who love to talk about the decay of our American cities, and they will have images of you know bum-infested, homeless-infested areas, which are all over San Fran proper. I went up there, what, a couple of years ago for a UNLV game, and while it didn't freak me out, like you definitely look around and you're like, wow, there are some really interesting places to walk here. And for a lot of people, and I'm not saying I'm like street savvy or you know I'm carrying a knife and I'm going to kick someone's ass, but... For a lot of people, that's scary stuff, and I the negative attention on San Fran for those six months is going to be just wicked. And we'll see if they can fix some of the problems from the first time around because the, the stadium does 
present some pretty interesting challenges. Today's another one of our National Food Days, National Pizza Party Day. I want like 12 National Pizza something days, but today is National Pizza Party Day. Why not? Uh, Magora's on DI on the east side of town is a great spot to go and get some New York-style hand-tossed cheese pizza, 3242 East Desert Inn Road. They've got their uh, anytime house specials. This will set you up with a uh, big party with pizza wings, fingers, fry special. You get uh, two 16-inch pizzas with a uh, half bucket of wings, half bucket of fingers, bucket of fries. And then you can go the mega deal, even bigger pizzas with two 18-inch pizzas and the bucket of wings, fingers, fries. They've also got great lunch specials from 10A to 2P. So uh, check out Magora's on DI. It's 3242 East Desert Inn Road. You can call and place your order at 702-248-7972. Celebrate this National Pizza Party Day at Magora's on DI. Cofield and Company will be right back. Keep it here on ESPN Las Vegas, 1100 AM and 100.9 FM. Kelsey Plum on the opener tomorrow in the beginning of the WNBA season. She's on the Aces, defending champ of the league. Uh, the opener is actually tonight. I think it's the lone game. I don't know. But there might be two games. But I know after Knights uh, and Stars, they're going to have WNBA action up on ESPN. Brittany Griner is back. So the Mercury are featured in that game. And the Aces can't rest on the laurels because the NBA, check that, WNBA, really the NBA too. Um, loaded up New York. And I do believe that, that behind the scenes the WNBA does operate a bit like the NBA did in the late 70s when there were enough uh, – well, I won't even get into it. The, the fact that the 80s got set up with the super team of the Celtics and the Lakers super team, and they were super teams just like LeBron and the Heat, but how those teams got put together – to then be the dominant franchise in the 80s is very interesting, and people aren't really paying attention to the WNBA, but the fact that they sort of depleted Seattle and uh, free agents pop up all over the place on the New York roster, a New York-Vegas-dominated league is very good for the WNBA with star power in both of those cities. This is a no-conflict Friday, so I'm not really sure why the Vast Sound Crew would send over this audio, but I was told that Tyson Fury, the uh, British boxer, was very angry about a Joe Rogan take recently where I guess Rogan suggested that uh, in a fight that John Jones would wipe out Tyson Fury. So here's Fury responding. He's not only mad about the theory that he would get his ass kicked by UFC champ John Jones, but he's mad at the messenger, Joe Rogan. I'm the baddest man on the planet. I heard Joe Rogan say something about me the other day and I've been off all the social medias and didn't reply to no ball that he I heard him say that John Jones could me up if we went in the room together. I don't think so. Not a man born for him. Mother can f- me up in a room on our own. Whatever happens in that room, I'd be walking out. Not a fucking problem. I think it would be a problem. I don't think Tyson Fury. I mean, if you're just walking into a room, right? We're not putting on gloves, right? We're not. It's not a boxing match. There's not an official in there. If you're just walking into a room without weapons, I, John Jones would have the challenge of getting underneath some punches from Tyson Fury at six nine. But I think John Jones would just, I mean, people who know how to really fight in street fights are not going to stand at a distance and dance and box. They're probably just going to close distance and get you to the ground or try to brutalize you inside. John Jones would get Tyson Fury, unless he got caught coming in on the ground, in less than 30 seconds. 
The other thing that's interesting is I think Joe Rogan's like 55. I actually think if you put Joe Rogan in a room with Tyson Fury, that Joe Rogan might also beat Tyson Fury. Joe Rogan is, I don't know if anyone's seen what kind of shape he's in. It might be a little uh, artificially enhanced, but Rogan actually was and still is a pretty highly decorated Taekwondo fighter. And at whatever he is, 5'7", yes, he would have to deal with some punches from 6'9", Tyson Fury coming in. But if Rogan could just reach him and just kick him in the legs, you know how badly that would hurt Tyson Fury? So I love stuff like this because this is the origins of mixed martial arts, right? The the beginning of mixed martial arts was, hey, we've got all these different fighting styles. Now we're going to all come together and see who can beat the other person's ass. So, again, it's a classic boxing versus wrestler, you know, mixed martial artist, boxing versus some karate guy, even though he's pushing 60. So it'll never happen. And there is no boxer in the world who's going to agree to actually fight mixed martial arts by those rules or do a straight fight. So it's nice talk from Tyson Fury, but I don't believe it's ever going to happen. And maybe it's a, a hype up for a fight against someone, maybe someone like Francis Ngannou, but it's never going to be a co-promoter. There's not going to be a box. John Jones is not boxing Tyson Fury, so he can talk all he wants, but it ain't going to happen, brother. Miss any of the show? We've got you covered. Head to LVSportsNetwork.com and go to podcasts to listen to all of your favorite LV Sports Network shows anytime from any place. Live at TI. Coming up on the 4 o'clock hour, this is the time of week we talk to Caleb Herring. You know, I was just going to say to you, John, during the break, you sent over some stuff about the A's and money and numbers and i looked at it i'm like i can't do it i I can't i can't do it because now there's more news out today about the the gap between what could be the suggested funding and then the nevada independent mentioned today you know worst case scenario now in this new deal property taxes could go up for all of us now i think that's worst case but i'm like i i gotta have a day off as as long as i get winning baseball steve i'm happy with it yeah i i thought this was a really big week for unlv the school uh, basketball, runner Rebels. Caleb Herring played for Rebel football team. Caleb, what do you think of DJ Thomas, a local kid, a legacy kid, given the commit to Kevin Kruger? I think it's huge. I think it's huge for hoops. I think it's huge for uh, for the UNLV culture, I think, as a whole. Like the fact that, you know, a major recruit, you're talking top 30 guy, um, stays home. It is, it's one thing for, you know, hometown, you know, kids to stay, but um, it's another thing when one of the top, you know, nationally kind of recognized guys stays and it, it maybe gets some ears to perk up or some, you know, some heads to turn and say like, Hey, what's, what's going on in Vegas? Not just for the locals, but also for, um, for guys across the nation who are like, what's, wh- why would he, you know, what's, what's going on there, especially in this day and age, um, you know, when, where the, the player's interest and in what they're feeling on any given day really matters as far as where they go and where they want to go. I think it's huge. I think it, it really does something for UNOV. Um, hopefully it, it transcends basketball and kind of spreads throughout so that football, you know, can can benefit. Obviously, that would be huge to get, you know, some top 20 players or some four star guys that are coming out of Gorman or Faith Lutheran that that have the opportunity to go to bigger schools elsewhere, decide to stay home. I think it's I think anytime you get hometown kids to stay that are that are quality, especially I mean, there's there's two different aspects. Anybody staying home in Vegas is a good story. Um, but, you know, especially those top guys who who, you know, let's face it, UNLV in the, in the rankings of, of, of major organizations is not at the top of the list of destinations for these four- and five-star recruits. So any of them that you get to stay home, I think is a big win for UNLV as a whole. Most important thing to breaking through that uh, recruiting glass ceiling and getting four-stars locally, is it simply winning? Or 
Is it what I think they're doing, going out and getting commits from three-star kids in the program? Like they just got a, a, a commit from a three-slash close to four-star from Bishop Gorman for 2024. They had earlier gotten one from Liberty. Like, do you think that's a good way to do it? You know, make the inroads, get the the next level kid, combine it with winning, and then maybe you start getting real looks from the top kid on the program. Yeah, I think there's definitely the inroads. I think we've seen in the past where we're having maybe a guy who's familiar or associated with the with the four or five star guy. Maybe he's a three star, but he's tight with a five star guy. So having him in the fold kind of helps you recruit in some way. We've seen that with UNLV with uh, with Harrison Bailey and 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 uh, and uh, White from Michigan. They both had a relationship, and, and there's no doubt that that played a role. And there's other examples on UNLV's football roster right now where it's like, hey. The role that they played in whatever history those two players had together definitely helped reel this recruit in, and there's no doubt about that. Um, I also think there's there's the aspect of of establishing a, a tradition within the community, and I, th- I think uh, that's what basketball I think is benefiting from right now. Um, we're talking about local kids coming in and and kind of having that that Las Vegas legacy behind it with Kruger. I think it just just the, the attachment tapping back into the the old Kruger days, um, kind of maybe brings up some memories and makes people want to reignite that energy, I guess. Um, so that's another way, just tapping into some, some kind of tradition as a university, as either a football team, basketball team, whatever program is, uh, trying to play up to that. But there's definitely some, some, some building you have to do. You don't just jump in um, and start throwing your name out there with the five-star recruits as if, you know, you didn't work your way up through the ranks and establish that relationship with, um, I don't want to say the, the, the underrated players on the roster, but the, those guys are important, right? Like the, the relationships that they have with those recruits, you can play to that. Um, and even just being more present and, and more serious about um, those connections with those players that you are recruiting. Um, the, the top guy, the top guys will see that, um, especially if they're underclassmen at the time, you know, you got a sophomore that's projected to be a five-star guy uh, when he graduates. If he sees one of his, you know, his buddies who he's buddies with as a senior, who's not getting all the looks, go to UNLV or make his way to UNLV for whatever reason. Um, that definitely could play a factor in, in your chances and the likelihood of you landing him when it's his turn. So um, there's a lot you can do, um, but it, the work has to be done, the groundwork for sure. And it, it seems like, you know, speaking specifically about Barry Odom and, and the coaching staff, uh, uh, the current coaching staff at UNLV, they're definitely trying to do the, the, the legwork, especially in the community in Las Vegas, to get the attention at least of these, these guys in high school and get it early um, in the recruiting process. All right, Caleb. UNLV's win total is set over at a couple of other uh, sports books. It is six, shaded to the under, unders favored at minus 125. What do you think of a win total of six for the Rebels this season? I, based on every indication that I have, like it's, it's the expectation internally, I could say that, um, with everything from the hiring of Barry Odom and the, 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 the kind of conversations that, um, that AD and Eric Harper has had just publicly speaking, that the expectation isn't that this is rebuilding with a new hire, obviously a new coaching and a new staff. This isn't some sort of rebuild where they're expecting to tear things down and and start from scratch. The expectation last season was a bowl game, and that's probably you know one of the factors that went into Marcus Arroyo being fired was the fact that they didn't make a bowl game, didn't get. Oh no! I think we lost them. Oh man! We'll get them back. We'll get him back. What do you think of the six? Did you guys talk about that? Are, are you this hardcore right now on uh, VEASAN oh. with Mountain West and, you know, AAC? We talked to Brad Powers yesterday about a little bit of Mountain West, but a lot of AAC. You guys going deep dive now? Uh, some people are. Yeah. Uh, and I would say, you know, I've looked at them. I, would, I think six is actually right on in terms of what the season could I, be I for agree. you. I agree. There he is. Caleb's I think, back. I, Caleb. think six, I think 
<laughs> yeah, I think six. I think six is a realistic expectation. I think with what the roster lost, I don't think there's enough key pieces at this point, like transfer portal wise, to say that they can't get to six wins. I think the biggest piece, obviously, that the chess on the chessboard was Doug Brumfield. Another yep. year of development for him. Obviously, pending his health is going to be a lot to do with this, but he's back. Uh, there's enough weapons around him. I think that returned uh, offensively to be back. I think the outlook from the outside looking in is this new coaching staff is what UNLV needs as far as the defensive-minded coach with head coaching experience. That was a knock against Marcus Royal. He was an offensive mind um, that maybe didn't have the head coaching experience to navigate the season the way a veteran in head coaching would, and that's what you have with Barry Odom. He's a defensive-minded coach, so defense improvement should be expected, um, and a lot of these games came down to the defense not being able to stop people in key situations. So I think a six-game, six-win total is, is right on. I think both expectations are internally expected um so we'll see how it shakes down and again the mountain west is not uh at full strength like it's been in year past where like you know the renos of the world were just like obviously very talented when they had a lot of nfl talent on the roster colorado state even this year is still feeling their way out through a transition there's there's a lot of winnable games in conference um that i think help out and in the non-conference schedule obviously there's got to be some wins there too for unlv to get that six win total but I, I think it's very realistic, and it's very um, – I wouldn't even say optimistic. I think it's an expectation for six games for UNLV at this point. Yeah, I think that would be fair. Um, what do you, Anything else, if I threw, like, Utah State five-and-a-half wins, Wyoming six-and-a-half wins, or Boise State nine, any of those sound too high or too low? Uh, I would say Boise State sounds high. Um, and that's – you know, this is a Boise State team that kind of had an up-and-down year. They started off kind of slow and – ended up rounding into form toward the end of the season, but I, they're not really doing themselves any favor with the non-conference schedule this year. Um, I do think that there's some underrated teams that like San, San Jose State maybe that I think could um, overperform where they where they anticipate to be. Um, so I, I think that would factor into maybe Boise State success because they play each other um, next year. So I, I, I would say, you know, Boise State might have a rougher, a tougher go of it than a nine win season. Um, but I, I do think they're still going to be a conference contender, uh, so I, I wouldn't disagree with that. But nine just seems like a high total uh, for for Boise State team that still has a lot of question marks, and like I said, didn't really have the best of seasons last year. Had a lot to figure out, a lot of hurdles to stumble over, especially when we're talking about their quarterback situation and, and what they were actually going to do with that. So um, we'll see. But again, the conference is kind of wide open. There's some things that can happen. I, I know Fresno State's going to probably be a lot different of a team now, losing their 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 guy at quarterback. Um, and Utah State will be interesting uh, with Blake Anderson and the year that they had. Again, replacing a quarterback that's been there, kind of been a staple of their offense. That's going to be interesting to see where they end up. So I can understand a dip in their expectations. Um, but again, wide open conference. We'll see how things shake out. Caleb Herring up on ESPN Las Vegas. Let's turn to the NBA. A couple of stories of the week. First of all, your perspective as a basketball fan will be interesting, but also the fact that you're in law enforcement on uh, John Morant waving the gun around. Uh, with music playing, J.J. Reddick comes over the top and is like, hey, there's no crime committed here. Why are we going after, um, you know, John Morant in, in an era now where we're, uh, you know, we have a very hyped-up gun culture. What do you think about what's happening? Uh, well, first, with the J.J. Reddick take, I think that was, you know, like you said, over the top to me. I, I, I disagree with him on a multitude of levels. I think as a gun rights, um, I wouldn't say I'm an activist. I'm not an activist at all. I, I, I am aware and in support of gun rights and support gun ownership in America for a lot of different reasons, a lot connected to law enforcement and my experience with the world as in 
as a kind of evil and dangerous place for self-protection, right? So I, I understand the necessity for weapons, even though I'm not, uh, you know, all gung-ho is the best thing. I don't think they're fun. I don't enjoy the fact that I need one. Um, but I do feel in, in certain instances, it'd be nice to have one um, or have the right to have one, I should say. Um, so I don't think this should be translated into a Second Amendment conversation because I think it's a lot deeper than that. And it stems more to a cultural thing for me. Um, I think there's a perception and a behavior uh, with the culture around what John Morant was doing with the gun um, that is kind of anti-responsible gun ownership, right? There's responsible gun ownership and then there's irresponsible gun ownership. And within the spectrum of irresponsible gun ownership comes things like murder, mass shootings, things like that. I would throw irresponsible behavior with a weapon into that category. Uh, what John Morant was doing, I think, in that category of irresponsible gun ownership, things you don't want to do with guns. And anybody who's a responsible gun owner who watched that is like, that's not how you should behave with a gun. You should take it seriously, understand the consequences, not flaunt it around. As a young black man, I was cast a lot as potentially being an irresponsible gun owner or a threat with a weapon. Um, and I think the language in the songs that you listen to, the context of what he's doing, the behavior he's emulating matter. It's legal to own a gun. Not going to dispute that. But I think culturally, there's a behavior that John Morant was exhibiting that is negative and detrimental, especially for me and my community, I guess. I, I don't like to phrase it this way, but there is a stigma in the culture that black men are associated with. Right. And I think John Morant is projecting that in a very negative way, not only for himself and for his community and for, you know, black people across the country, but for the NBA. And that's the most important thing. The NBA has every right to say that's not the image we want to portray. That's not the culture we want to portray. And I don't want to tie it too much to like back in the day when they had the whole clothing restrictions and all that stuff with the NBA. But it's it's a part of their image and their brand. If they want to disassociate themselves with an image, they have the right to as as an enterprise. Um, and I think this is one of those instances where, yes, with everybody as sensitive as they are around gun violence and things like that and, and cultures and narratives, I think what John Morant's done on two consecutive, very, you know, quick and quick succession incidents with guns and, and gun ownership and just culturally what he's portraying as acceptable behavior. I think the NBA has every right to take this seriously and, and suspension to whatever degree I think is, is warranted. Um, so I, I think JJ Redding missed the mark with his take. I think John Morant's behavior for a lot of reasons is unacceptable, especially when you're talking about, you know, $200 million contracts. You think you're you're getting paid that just to play basketball? Like there's a lot more that's associated with why the brand of the NBA is worth that much. And I think his conduct was definitely detrimental to that brand and and the the punishment should should be somewhat severe in my opinion. Caleb Herring is up on Cofield and Company. We've got about ninety seconds left. I'll throw this one at you. Another story of the week in the National Basketball Association, the lottery. Victor Webinyama, seven foot five guard who can do everything. I'll say could be the next Jokic in terms of impact. Oh, yeah, Webinyama to Jokic, figure it out, right? Um, do you buy from guys like Wodes that he's the greatest NBA prospect ever? Uh, no. I think, I think the hype around him may be the greatest. I think, and that's, that's more of a, a, a narrative that's driven by people who are, are not the player and is not the film. Um, it, it could, it's very easy to get excited about the potential of what he could be. Um, it's, like you said, 7'5", kind of freakishly athletic for that size to be able to dribble and have the ball he does to be able to shoot the way he does. Again, we, we haven't seen it yet because the game hadn't evolved 
you know, to this point where everybody's trying to do that from a young age. So he's developed a skill set that maybe he wouldn't have in a past time. Right. A seven foot five guy or seven, seven footer, you know, even six years ago would be expected to play with his back to the basket more. But nowadays it's like everybody's dribbling, everybody's shooting threes. So this guy obviously grew up in that, the school of basketball. I think there's there's guys in the history of sports. Um, and obviously the first one that comes to mind is LeBron James in recent history. Um, but you go back, go back to Lou Alcindor or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar when he came out as a prospect to the NBA. The expectations of what they could be um, was definitely astronomical. I think in today's social media-driven age, it's very easy to drum up a narrative maybe that that is a little bit embellished. And I'm not saying that he's not going to be a talented NBA player, but there's a lot of things that he's got to prove first before he achieves anything near what they're projecting he's going to achieve um, as an NBA player. Um, that being said, he's going to be fun to watch. I mean, yeah. like it, it's just seeing him compared to other athletes like walking around in airports or whatever. Like this guy's seven five. Just you don't see that, right? Like, <laughs> you know, there's not a many times where I've seen anybody, let alone seven feet, but seven five. It's just different. Um, and then to be dribbling the ball the way he does, it's it's going to be interesting to see how well it translates to the NBA and what he does against NBA talent. Um, but I like I like I said, there's other guys in history that LeBron James comes to mind because he actually lived up to it and maybe exceeded some of the expectations when he came out of high school. Um, and I lived through that as a youth. So I, maybe that's like maybe embellished in my own mind a little bit. But I think the narrative of him being the greatest prospect ever, not just in basketball, the greatest prospect in any sport, um, I think is a little bit embellished. And there's a, it's a little bit of a media narrative that's pushed that may be unfair to him as a player. We'll see. Hopefully his career doesn't suffer for him. And, I, you know, there's talk about him being a bust if he doesn't become GOAT conversation player. That's just unfair to him as a player going into his career. Caleb, you rule. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys, have fun with the EDC crowd down there. I yes, hear it's live always, down the strip. Always. <laughs> the older I get, the more uh, creepy I feel around around the, the very young EDC crowd. There is Caleb Aaron, 4 o'clock hours on the way. Big four at four, and we will get into some of that uh, detractor stuff on Wemby.